Raji Bhai, Shri K.K. Shah and friends, there was hardly any aspect of individual, social or national life which Gandhiji did not touch or to which he did not contribute a new approach and outlook. I would deal with Bapu's economic ideas tomorrow in the third and the concluding lecture. Today I would like to mention some aspects of his social philosophy, including education. In the reconstruction of our social structure, Bapu was deeply worried about the welfare of the weakest, the poorest and the lowliest sections of society, more especially the Harijans, the Adivasis and the lepers. As we are all aware, Gandhiji staked his own life on several occasions through fasts for arousing the conscience of the community against the harassment, ill-treatment and inhuman behavior towards the scheduled castes. He regarded untouchability as the greatest blot on the Hindu religion. It is therefore incumbent on all of us to pay special attention to this problem during the centenary year. We may recollect how Gandhiji had adopted a Harijan girl in the Ahmedabad Kochrab Ashram in 1915 and how he, his family and his ashram suffered at the hands of the Orthodox people. Gandhiji did not even hesitate to ask his elder sister to leave the ashram because she could not reconcile herself to the absorption of untouchables in the family. In the Savarmati and Sevagram ashrams also, Bapu endeavored to advance the cause of the Harijans in every manner possible. I vividly remember how, during the first few days of his shifting to Sevagram village from Vardha, Gandhiji refused to accept the services of the local barber because the latter would not agree to shave the Harijan inmates of the ashram. In subsequent years, Bapu had made it a rule that marriages could be celebrated in his presence in the ashram only when one of the parties belonged to the Harijan community. We know how Gandhiji undertook a fast unto death for protesting against the British proposal of introducing separate electorates for the Harijans. It was as a result of this self-immolation that the alien government was forced to drop the idea of segregating the scheduled castes from the Hindu community in elections to the legislators. As against this illustrious and inspiring background, it is indeed most shocking to read quite frequently even these days about harassments and even murders of Harijans at the hands of the privileged classes in different parts of the country. I need hardly say that we should bend our energies to recapture the old spirit and befriend and assimilate the Harijan communities in the Indian social fabric with a sense of dedication in the sacred memory of the great master whose centenary is being observed throughout the world this year. 
Mahatma Gandhi had repeatedly stated that a Sarvoday society of his conception could not be established without paying first attention to the last man on the ladder. Unless we level up the poorest and the richer sections of the community voluntarily level themselves down for bringing about a harmonious and homogeneous society, it would not be feasible to establish a socialist and democratic society according to Gandhiji's ideals. Bapu had worked for winning Swaraj for those toiling and unemployed millions who do not get even a square meal a day and have to scratch along with a piece of stale bread and a pinch of salt. He often remarked that even God could not dare to appear before the poor and the hungry except in the form of a bowl of rice. The Suraj of his dreams was a poor man's Suraj in which the necessaries of life were to be enjoyed by the weakest segments of the society. In this context, Gandhiji had given us a wonderful talisman. I quote, Whenever you are in doubt, or when the self becomes too much with you, apply the following test. Recall the face of the poorest and the weakest man whom you may have seen, and ask yourself if the step you contemplate is going to be of any use to him. Will he gain anything by it? Will it restore him control over his own life and destiny? In other words, will it lead to Suraj for the hungry and spiritually starving millions? Then you will find your doubts and self melting away." Unquote. To the Mahatma, a socialist society could be brought about only through non-violent means and by training the lowliest in the science of satyagraha for securing redress of the wrongs. An atmosphere of mutual respect and trust has to be established without creating a violent conflict between the classes and the masses. Socialism, said Gandhiji, is as pure as crystal. It therefore requires crystallized means to achieve it. Gandhiji wanted to begin each reform with himself. Socialism begins with the first convert, said he. If there is one such, you can add zero to the one, and the first zero will count for ten, and the additional will count for ten times to the previous number. If, however, the beginner is a zero, in other words, no one makes the beginning, Multiplicity of zeros will also produce zero value." Unquote. As regards the Adivasis, Bapu had started several organizations to ameliorate their social and economic conditions. It is a matter for satisfaction that Thakkar Bapa and his band of workers under Gandhiji's guidance have been able to achieve striking results in this direction. It is, however, essential to continue this constructive work with even greater zeal and devotion. A large number of young men have to be trained and sent to the tribal areas for intensive work. Gandhiji himself had remarked, truly, the harvest is rich, but the laborers are few. 
He regarded the service of the tribal population as not merely humanitarian, but solidly national, which brings us nearer to true independence. It is well known that Bapu evinced unusual interest in the service of the lepers. At Vardha, a leper colony in Dattapur was started under Gandhiji's direct guidance many years ago. It has been doing excellent work during this period, especially by trying to make the lepers self-reliant through a variety of productive activities. At the instance of Gandhiji, many other institutions of a similar nature were established in different parts of India. We do expect that this important social work would now receive greater care and attention from both official and non-official agencies. The image of Gandhiji cleaning the wounds of the renowned Sanskrit scholar Parchure Shastri with his own hands in the Sevagram ashram would always remain a source of light and inspiration to countless leprosy workers in India and abroad. Gandhiji ardently desired that all communities in India, including the religious and linguistic minorities, should be made to feel at home by the majority community in order to promote a sense of national integration and social cohesion. He commenced his morning prayers in the ashram with chantings from the holy scriptures of different religions, the essential principles of which are common and universal. Gandhiji worked ceaselessly for achieving this unity in the midst of diversity. The Swaraj of his dreams recognized no communal or religious distinctions. He had emphatically declared, quote, it has been said that Indian Swaraj will be the rule of the majority community, that is the Hindus. There could not be a greater mistake than that. If it were to be true, I for one would refuse to call it Swaraj and would fight with all the strength at my command, for to me Hind Swaraj is the rule of all people, is the rule of justice." Unquote. Gandhiji further asserted, our independence would be complete only if it is as much for the prince as for the peasant, as much for the rich landowner as for the landless tiller of the soil, as much for the Hindus as for the Muslims, as much for Parsis and Christians as for Jains, Jews, Sikhs, irrespective of any distinction of caste or creed or status in life. While we remember with respect and affection this noble leader of humanity during the current year, let us at least in our own country strain every nerve to bring about real and lasting social cohesion by adopting a correct attitude towards the minorities. India is a secular state in which there should be equal regard for all religions and faiths in an atmosphere of mutual respect and tolerance. While the majority community has every right to follow its own religion in the background of its ancient heritage, it is also its bounden duty to make the other communities feel at ease. 
Any talk of Hindu Rashtra in this context is wrong and unfair and cuts at the very roots of Indian democracy. I would, however, like to add that the minority communities in turn should not do or say anything which would raise the slightest suspicion about their basic loyalty to the Indian nation. For instance, I look with deep pain at the reported attempts to carve out a Muslim region in the southern parts of the country. Such fissiparous and disruptive tendencies on the part both of the majority and the minority communities have to be nipped in the bud and should not be allowed to corrode the basic structure of India's unity. Gandhiji was very much exercised about another social tension, namely the widening cleavage between the educated and the uneducated classes. The system of education drawn up by the British rulers had made Indian young men alien to their own soil and cut them adrift from the masses. Bapu had therefore enunciated the principle of basic education in which academic subjects were to be taught through the medium of productive activity like agriculture, gardening, animal husbandry, cottage industries and the like. He was very particular that the students should learn the principles of self-help, self-reliance and dignity of manual labor along with their intellectual attainments. It is regrettable that this system of Naitalim advocated by Mahatma Gandhi has never been given a fair trial in the country either by the administration or the educationists. The craft-centered education has been derided as an indirect attempt to introduce khadi and village industries in educational institutions. This is surely a very uncharitable attitude towards Gandhiji's progressive and rational views on education. Bapu had made it abundantly clear from the very beginning that the aim of basic education was to teach a craft not merely mechanically as is generally done today this but scientifically in order to develop both the physical as well as the intellectual potentialities of the child. In short, Gandhiji's basic objective was to impart an all-round and integrated type of education to children. The new education scheme, stated Gandhiji, is not a little of literary education and a little of craft. It is full education through the medium of a craft. Furthermore, the aim of new education was not to make schools self-supporting for saving financial expenditure of the state. The main objective was to impart good education to children through productive work and, in the process, make it self-reliant also. The emphasis, said Bapu, laid on the principle of spending every minute of one's life usefully is the best education for citizenship and, incidentally, makes education self-sufficient. During my educational tour around the world in 1949, I had the privilege of meeting for about an hour the distinguished educationist Professor John Dewey in New York and discussing with him Gandhiji's scheme of education. The professor was deeply impressed and feelingly observed, Gandhiji's system of education is, I am sure, 
one step ahead of all the other systems. It is full of immense potentialities and we all hope to learn much from India in this revolutionary educational effort." Unquote. It is heartening to find that the renowned Swedish economist, Professor Gunnar Merdal, in his recent monumental publication entitled The Asian Drama, has come to a similar conclusion. He is of the definite opinion that basic-oriented primary education could be the ideal solution to the much-needed reform of the curriculum and teaching methods in Indian primary schools. He continues, quote, such a school would have local roots and its isolation from the community at large would be lessened. It would encourage the teacher to participate in the life of the community and exert his influence towards changing attitudes. And most important for effective teaching, it would give all children the experience of performing purposeful work with their hands, which would also help to counteract prejudices against manual work. Undoubtedly, Gandhiji's philosophy of basic education and similar movements in other South Asian countries represent a much-needed revolt against the wasteful treadmill of the inherited primary schools." Unquote. The Education Commission has recently recommended a system of work experience, which to my mind is only an apology for basic education. I do not really understand why we have become so allergic to the term basic. In any event, I do not like to go into semantics provided the underlying principles of basic education as enunciated by Mahatma Gandhi are incorporated even now in the educational system at the primary and secondary stages. Unless we reorient our educational institutions towards productive activities, both in the villages as well as in the cities, and combine academic teaching with creative work, we shall be generating complex and even explosive conditions of educated unemployment and low productivity, which are bound to imperil the very existence of our socialist democracy. I would, however, like to mention that it is not necessary to attach separate farms or workshops to basic or post-basic schools. We should prepare a well-considered scheme to link up projects under the five-year plans, including land reclamation, soil conservation, compost manuring, improved methods of agriculture, dairying, village forestry, khadi, village and cottage industries. In fact, the whole of the community development movement could be properly dovetailed into basic schools without much additional expenditure. At any rate, there may be a few farms and workshops attached to a selected number of basic and post-basic schools for purposes of orientation and intensive training. Gandhiji showed great concern for the welfare of students and tried to cultivate those contacts with them. To him, they were the hope of the future. Bapu was much dissatisfied with the use of a foreign language as the medium of instruction in educational institutions.
He also desired radical changes in the existing curricula, which were too bookish and out of tune with the realities of life. Nonetheless, he showered plentiful love and affection on students from amongst whom the future leaders of the nation would rise. Gandhiji was of the definite view that students must not take part in party politics because they are students, searchers, not politicians. He did not like students resorting to political strikes. Gandhiji said, quote, on no account may they use coercion against authorities. They must have the confidence that if they are united and dignified in their conduct, they are sure to win. Bapu had prescribed a constructive program for students, including Swadeshi, through the use of khadi and village industries, learning the national language, promotion of national unity, first aid to the injured, and sanitation work in the neighboring villages. He also wanted students to be scrupulously correct and chivalrous in their behavior towards their women fellow students. I do wish and hope that the student community in India and abroad would heed even today the precious advice given to them by the Mahatma. Gandhiji had also paid special attention to the regeneration of women in India by drawing them into the freedom movement and trying to remove various social and economic obstacles which stood in the way of their progress. Although women occupied a high social status in ancient India, we must concede that during centuries past, they have suffered gross social and economic injustice at the hands of the community. Gandhiji therefore espoused the cause of women with great concern. It is mainly due to his untiring efforts in this direction that women in free India occupy high positions in national life. It is indeed a glorious tribute to Bapu that a distinguished daughter of India occupies today the pivotal position of the Prime Minister and happens to be the only woman Prime Minister in the world. Gandhiji had advocated the repeal of all economic and legal disabilities from which women in India and elsewhere suffer today. Men, observed Bapu, has always desired power and ownership of property gives that power. Gandhiji therefore desired that the daughters and sons should be treated on a footing of perfect equality. He, however, did not like the efforts of women to imitate men. He believed that a woman could not make her contribution to the world by mimicking or running a race with men. Quote, she can run the race, remarked Gandhiji, but she will not rise to the greatest heights she is capable of by mimicking men. She has to be the complement of men. And Bapu added, woman who knows and fulfills her duty realizes her dignified status. She is the queen, not the slave of the household over which she presides. A word about Gandhiji's attitude towards birth control or to use the modern term family planning. While he yielded to none in recognizing the need for having smaller families, 
for controlling the fast-growing population, Bapu underlined the value of self-restraint. He was convinced that the ancient Indian tradition of self-control or brahmacharya was an invaluable sovereign remedy doing good to those who practice it. Artificial methods are like putting a premium on vice. They make men and women reckless, he said. The remedy will be found to be worse than the disease. Our five-year plans have been according a very high priority to the family planning program for checking the population explosion. As I have already stated, Gandhiji was fully alive to the urgent need for birth control. Even so, he viewed with distress the tendency of the people and the state to resort to artificial methods without emphasizing the supreme importance of self-restraint and trying to create a healthy atmosphere for it. The third five-year plan did underscore the need for placing, I quote, the greatest emphasis on moral and psychological elements, on restraint and on such social policies as education of women, opening up of new employment opportunities for them, and raising of the age of marriage, unquote. While the use of modern birth control methods under specified conditions could not be ruled out, it is imperative to highlight the primary importance of self-restraint in the nationwide campaign for family planning. If we succeed in creating a strong public opinion in favor of having smaller families through educative propaganda and by raising the age of marriage, the impact of family planning programs would be much greater and more lasting. We must also take particular care to ensure that the propagation of artificial devices is not misused by the younger generation for self-indulgence leading to the erosion of fundamental values of social morality. In regard to health, Gandhiji had emphasized the value of simple life and the use of nature cure methods. He had popularized the use of pure air, water, simple food and self-control for maintaining a sound mind in a sound body. For specific maladies, sunbath and the use of earth and water were prescribed by him as effective remedies. It is indeed significant that during his long detention in the Aga Khan Palace during the August Rebellion, Gandhiji should have written a book entitled Key to Health instead of panning down a treatise on politics or economics. In the course of his preface to the brochure, Gandhiji wrote, quote, anyone who observes the rules of health mentioned in this book will find that he has got a real key to unlock the gates leading him to health. He will not need to knock at the doors of doctors or vedyas from day to day. It would be very much worth our while, therefore, placing millions of copies of this valuable booklet in the hands of the new generation during the centenary year. Mahatma Gandhi was very anxious to introduce total prohibition throughout India as an essential part of national development. He had gone to the extent of saying, quote, if I were appointed the dictator of India for one hour only, the first thing I would do will be to close without compensation 
all the liquor shops, unquote. Even at the time of the Gandhi-Arvind Pact, Gandhiji did not withdraw his right to organize picketing of wine shops. The Congress has also been including prohibition as an important item of its election manifestos ever since the first general elections. It is therefore disquieting that several governments have now scrapped prohibition and repudiated this national policy under the pretext of raising additional resources for the next five-year plan. I may give here a brief history of this subject for your information. In 1963, when some state governments had indicated their intention of going back on prohibition, I had taken the initiative of convening a conference of all the chief ministers together with the members of the Planning Commission. Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru was good enough to be present throughout the discussions for two days. After a threadbare analysis of the problem, Panditji had remarked, I will indeed be very sorry if the evil of drinking spreads in India. Any argument against prohibition on financial grounds is meaningless. Nevertheless, we should try to plug various loopholes in order to implement the prohibition program more effectively." Unquote. The conference unanimously requested the Planning Commission to appoint a high-level committee for going into this question thoroughly and suggesting concrete steps for enabling the states to implement the prohibition policy efficiently. Since I was in charge of prohibition in the Planning Commission at that time, I consulted the Deputy Chairman and decided to request the Chief Justice of India to recommend the name of an eminent judge for functioning as the chairman of the Prohibition Enquiry Committee. We were very keen that the report of this committee should be objective and scientific. The Chief Justice, after careful selection, suggested the name of Justice Take Chan, a person in no way connected with Prohibition campaign. The Enquiry Committee was given the fullest scope for studying the whole problem de novo without any prejudices for or against the policy. The report of the committee, therefore, should have been regarded by the state governments as some kind of a judgment, and they ought to have implemented its recommendations without further questioning. It is thus a matter of dismay that almost all the states, with the exception of Gujarat and Madras, have either given up prohibition or diluted it beyond recognition. I do not view prohibition merely as a moral or social policy. Our main anxiety has been the economic betterment of the poorer and vulnerable segments of the population. During my extensive tours as a member of the Planning Commission, I visited one of these steel plants sometime in 1962. I was shocked to hear from the general manager that about 40% of the weekly wages disbursed to the workers of this public enterprise were being drunk away on the payday itself. Similar conditions prevail in almost all the big projects of the country, both in public as well as private sectors. When I toured Kerala some years ago, I was astonished to learn that despite a variety of beneficial schemes under the third five-year plan, the economic condition of the fishermen 
had remained stagnant and deplorable because of the drink evil. In the absence of prohibition, our planning process is like filling a vessel with milk and honey with a number of leaking points at the bottom. We should surely try our best to improve the implementation of the prohibition program with a view to checking illicit practices effectively. But to scrap prohibition altogether would be like throwing the baby away with the bath water. It is common knowledge that illicit distillation exists on a wide scale, even in the wet areas. Gandhiji was, however, of the definite view that the prohibition policy could not be enforced successfully without the fullest cooperation of a large number of devoted social workers in the field, with the proper coordination of official as well as non-official agencies it should be feasible to introduce complete prohibition throughout India within the next few years. Bapu was a staunch supporter of the democratic form of government based on adult franchise. He was in favor of direct democracy at the base and indirectly elected democratic institutions upwards under the panchayat system. He had an unwavering faith in the intrinsic goodness of the people and their sound common sense. It would therefore be wrong on our part to cast doubts on the democratic structure of our constitution under the stresses and strains of the current political situation, particularly after the fourth general elections. Instead of thinking in terms of a new type of constitution, presidential or otherwise, it would be much better for us to develop certain healthy democratic conventions in accordance with our own conditions. If we promptly forge such checks and counterchecks within the Constitution and the existing laws, we shall be able to sustain and develop our democratic framework on sure foundations. In addition, these new conventions built into our political system will be a source of inspiration to other developing countries of Asia and Africa, which are struggling to preserve democratic institutions and avoid a drift towards totalitarianism. Gandhiji had strongly advocated the decentralization of political and economic power in favor of more or less self-sufficient and self-governing village panchayats. He regarded these local institutions as the models of non-violent organization. It would be erroneous to think that Bapu wished to revive the ancient Indian village republics exactly in the old form. Necessary changes will have to be introduced in accordance with altered circumstances and requirements. It must, however, be conceded that since the dawn of civilization, these village panchayats contained within them the potentialities of an ideal socio-political organization based on direct democracy, social cohesion, and mutual cooperation. Gandhiji was therefore anxious to incorporate the panchayat system in the Indian constitution. In reply to a letter of mine on the subject, 
he had expressed his categorical views in the columns of the Harijan in December 1947. I quote, I am informed that there is no mention or direction about village panchayats and decentralization in the foreshadowed constitution. It is certainly an omission calling for immediate attention this if our independence is to reflect recording. the people's voice. The greater the power of the panchayats, the better for the people. Moreover, panchayats to be effective and efficient, panchayats, the level of people's education has to be considerably raised." Unquote. It was as a result of this plea by Gandhiji that the Constituent Assembly of India added Article 40 in the Directive Principles to the effect that the state shall take steps to organize village panchayats and endow them with such powers and authority as may be necessary to enable them to function as units of self-government. The imperative need for the devolution and decentralization of political power should not be considered as one more Gandhian fad. It is now being recognized as a very desirable objective by many progressive political thinkers of the West. If men's faith in social action is to be revivified, observes Professor Jode, the state must be cut up and its functions distributed. According to Aldous Huxley, the political road to a better society is a road of decentralization and responsible self-government. Dr. Adams, in his modern state, after analyzing the shortcomings of governments, wants us, quote, to go to the root of the trouble and pursue a bold policy of devolution of decentralization. Louis Mumford recommends the building up of small balanced communities in the open country. Professor Harold Lasky favors decentralization because centralization makes for uniformity. It lacks the genius of time and place. It was in small communities, declares Lord Bryce, that democracy first arose. It is in them that the way in which the real will of the people tells upon the working of the government can best be studied, because most of the questions that come before the people are within their knowledge." Unquote. After independence, almost all the state governments have introduced the Panchayati Raj in their areas for implementing the directive principle of our constitution in relation to the organization of village panchayats. We often hear adverse remarks that the devolution of political power on the panchayat institutions has led to casteism, inefficiency, and corruption. In my view, such criticisms are unjustified and reveal a lack of trust in our people. Trust begets trust, and if we repose confidence in the wisdom and sound common sense of the rural masses and provide them with the requisite guidance, training, and resources, I do not have a shadow of doubt that the panchayats would in due course 
proved to be the firm and sound foundations for our democratic structure in the years to come. In this structure, composed of innumerable villages, declared Gandhiji, there will be ever-widening, never-ascending circles. Life will not be a pyramid with the apex sustained by the bottom. We are bound to face a number of difficulties in the implementation of this goal. All of us have therefore to address ourselves to this vital task with devotion and a sense of mission. In the last analysis, Gandhiji cherished the ultimate objective of Sarvodaya or the welfare of all irrespective of any distinctions. He did not believe in the doctrine of the greatest good of the greatest number because under it the interests of the substantial minority could be sacrificed for the good of the majority. Bapu described this philosophy as a heartless doctrine which has done harm to humanity. According to him, the only real dignified human doctrine is the greatest good of all. The Sarvoda Society of Gandhiji's vision has to be based on the ideal of non-violence in every sphere. There must not be any social or economic exploitation of the poorer segments of the society, said Bapu. Everybody would regard all as equal with oneself and hold them together in the silken net of love. Everybody would know how to earn an honest living by the sweat of one's brow and make no distinction between intellectual and physical labor. He continued, if we would see our dream of a Sarvodaya society, we would regard the humblest and the lowest Indian as being equal to the tallest in the land. In such a society, the prince and the peasant, the wealthy and the poor, the employer and the employee are all on the same level. Gandhiji's concept of Sarvodaya was diametrically opposed to Marxism, which gives exclusive importance to material advancement, even through impure methods. Marxism repelled Bapu because, quote, it was based on violence and denial of God. Although Gandhiji believed in a classless society, he did not believe in eradicating evil from the human breast at the point of the bayonet. He regarded Marx as a great man, but did not accept his economic doctrines. He had an abiding faith in nonviolence and the essential goodness of human nature. Bapu did not believe in short, violent cuts to success. He was convinced that the road to a non-violent or sarvoda society may appear to be long, perhaps too long, but it was ultimately the shortest. Thank you.